0: You guys have heard him preach before without the anointing of laying hands. This morning, you're going to get the first sermon after being ordained as a pastor. And he told me this morning, he says, dude, I'm going to bring it. I am going to bring it. And he has already done that. So thank you so much. Stretch out your hands to Scott. Let's pray for this brother as he brings the word. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Scott and for the Holy Spirit that, that you've given him, God. Thank you so much for being an example of a man who loves you, loves his family, loves his wife. Thank you for being uh, God to him in a, in a special way through the darkness and, and through the good times, Lord. That he can still be here preserved and, and kept in order to testify of your goodness. And to bring us something from your heart this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. And everybody says, Amen. Amen. Thank you. And just to set the record straight, I don't actually read or speak Syriac. so <laughs> I, I, <and laughs> I, I have to tell you this story. The other day I was realizing that, you know, I've spent all this time studying. And I realized that I don't have any good preaching shoes. So I called up Pastor Jonathan and said, bro, dude, I always see you take the stage in these shoes that are beautiful. Can you hook me up? He's like, come on over. So he, he takes me into the shoe closet. It's like Mecca, right? And, and I find these black, black shoes with the, the nice white stitching. And I was like, I'll borrow those. And he's like, would you like to take a pair of jeans? I was like, nope. Because <laughs> I've seen the bedazzled. I've seen the little glue gun holster. And I don't need the jeans. <laughs> but thank you for the shoes. I appreciate it. Good morning. How are you guys doing this morning? Awesome. Uh, We're going to be in John chapter 8 this morning. While you're turning there, um, I I have to talk to the men just for a second. Are you guys excited about Bacon Fest? I heard that more bacon. I was like, I'm there. I'll cancel whatever's on my calendar. I'm having bacon. So (laughs) John 8 is where we're going to be, and I'm just going to ask you to pray with me, and we'll invite God's guidance through our time this morning. Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the way that you love us. Thank you that you walk with us through life. Lord, we just thank you for the opportunity that we have to, to gather here and express our gratitude for the cross, for your grace, for all that you do for us. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to, to hear your word, that we ask that you would challenge and encourage us through it. Lord, we thank you for all the other churches in our city and in our state, in our country, and in our world that are preaching the gospel. And would ask, Lord, that through the preaching of your word, lives would be renewed and restored and healed. Transformation would happen. Relationships would be healed and mended. And Lord, we just ask you to do all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I don't know about you guys, but uh, my family has sort of an unofficial Friday night tradition. And my kids are in school, and my wife's a school teacher, and I have work obligations, and I have school And Friday is the first time all week that we have to be together with no homework, with no obligations, no distractions. And we can just sort of disconnect and reconnect. And we have dinner and a movie night. And I started to realize that every week for the last 47 weeks, my children have asked to watch the same movie Friday night. The same movie. It's this little indie film. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of it. It's called Frozen. Frozen. And and I've seen this movie so many times that I've actually thought about filing a lawsuit with Disney. And not because it's not a good movie, but you don't know how emasculating it is to be a 41-year-old man walking through the grocery store with your groceries in your basket and realizing that people are just kind of stopped and are watching you because out loud you're singing, Do you want to build a snowman? It's completely emasculating and I realized that this habit of picking the same movie week after week after week has been going on in my house for like four years. Let it go. go. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) See I'm gonna break into song again and that's the problem. This has been happening for four years in my house. My daughter was in kindergarten. My son was like a year and a half and we'd take her to school and we'd drop her off and we'd get in the car and he'd start asking me, daddy where are we going? And I'd say, well, we're going to the grocery store. And then where are we going? Well, then I have to get gas. And then where are we going? And he would literally ask me up to a thousand times until I finally said, then we're going home. And he'd be like, oh, okay, cool. When we get home, can we watch Thomas the Train? And and then somebody sent us the movie Tangled. And it was Tangled for a year. And then somebody sent Brave. And then, thank God... They got into Jurassic Park for a couple months. Because I can do Jurassic Park. And then, thanks Uncle Blair, he sent us Frozen. And my TV has been commandeered by Frozen ever since. And I started realizing the other day that there's a reason why they like these movies so much. There's a reason why we like these stories so much. It's because they all have the happy ending. Right? That Disney has made a kingdom telling stories with the happily ever after. And I started thinking, what would these movies be like if if we could just tweak the ending a little bit, right? So if if you've seen Tangled, instead of the wicked woman tripping and falling out the window and plummeting 47 stories to her death, what if that was the handsome hero? Would we really like that story so much? I'm going to be honest, I probably would. I'd probably get into it a little bit (laughs) more. But at at the end of Brave, right, there's there's a... Merida's the princess and she pronounces a curse on her mother and she becomes a bear. And at the end of the movie, she's having a fight with this other evil bear. Would we like that movie so much if the evil bear wins that fight? I'm not so sure that we'd line up to see the movie called Guilt instead of Brave. And and I know that some of you guys are sitting here thinking like, okay, I don't know what you're talking about. Who watches Disney movies? Okay, so here's for you. If you're watching the movie Rocky... Right, and at the end of Rocky, Rocky's just getting pummeled, and he falls to his knees, and his face is swollen, and his eyes are blackened, and his mouth is bloodied, and the referee is counting him out, and he picks himself up. And here comes Apollo Creed dancing across the ring. And just as Rocky summons enough strength, Apollo Creed lands a haymaker and knocks him back in the last Tuesday. Would we really like these stories if they didn't have the happily ever after? And I started to realize maybe this is why we like the Bible so much. Because the Bible is really the first book that was ever written that has the happily ever after. Right? It starts out so beautifully that God creates the heavens and the earth. And then he shapes it into this beautiful garden. And he puts Adam and Eve in it to have fellowship with him. And to tend the garden. And to do God's work. And it's just three chapters in where they've blown it. They've introduced sin, they've introduced shame, they've introduced death, and they're kicked out of the garden. But if you keep reading, you get to Revelation 21 at the end, and there's the happily ever after, because God renews everything, and he restores everything, and he wipes away every tear from our eye, takes away death, takes away pain, takes away hurt, and our happily ever after with God is literally forever after. And the cool thing about the Bible is that we don't need to wait to get all the way to the end to start getting these little glimpses of the hope. These little snapshots of the way that God wants it to be. Right? Genesis 1.1, the very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And we think, cool. And Genesis starts to describe this world. It's formless and void. And scholars argue about what that expression means. But the best way to understand it is that it's just sort of a desolate, chaotic wasteland. And we continue reading it's covered in darkness. And we continue reading that it's covered in water. Right? And and the, the beautiful thing about Genesis 1 is that God shows how he takes what is a desolate wasteland and shapes it into this beautiful place to have fellowship with you and me. And already in Genesis 1, though, right, it's, it's chaotic. It's a barren wasteland. It's covered in darkness. And what is the first creative words that God speaks into this place of blackness? Let there be light. And it's a little glimmer of hope for us. Can we take it a little deeper this morning? We go jump forward to Exodus, and Pastor Jonathan took us through the life of Joseph this summer. And Joseph found himself sold into slavery. And Joseph found himself in Egypt. And Joseph's family eventually found themselves in Egypt. And then a million of their family find themselves in Egypt. And Pharaoh gets a little scared. He's a little freaked out. There's a million of these guys. So he does what any ruthless dictator would do. He makes them his slaves. And he says, I'll keep them in their place by making them my slaves. And the people cry out to God. They cry out to God and they ask God, why are you allowing us to live like this? We're your chosen people. You promised Abraham a land of milk and honey. Why are you treating us like this? And their cry rises up to God and God raises up Moses and says, go get my people and bring them to the land of their rest the land that I've promised them. And this picture of the Exodus is a beautiful picture of our relationship with God, right? Because when God finds us, we're enslaved to sin. When God finds us, we're dead in our sins. And he calls us out of that. He redeems us out of that. And he wants to bring us to our rest. And lying between those two moments, our experience is not unlike Israel's experience because God sent them Through the wilderness. And in Exodus chapter 13. We read that when Pharaoh let the people go. God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines. Although that was near. For God said lest the people change their minds when they see war. And return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Catch that. Because what God is saying is that I took them out of slavery, but I didn't take them the easy road. I didn't take them the straight path. I took them all the way around. Because I knew that they would find something that would scare them so much that they would want to go back to slavery. And in verse 21 we read, And the Lord went before them by day, in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. And the thing about this wilderness experience that Israel has, right, is that it's it's in a lot of ways to call to mind that moment of original creation when it was desolate, when it was formless and void, when it was dark. And just like God spoke into that moment, let there be light, he finds Israel in the wilderness and speaks the same word. And he gives them light to guide them from their moment of redemption To their moment of rest. In the promised land. And when we jump to John chapter 8. We have found this woman. Who's been caught in adultery. We find this woman. Who is, is being charged with a crime. That is punishable by death. And her story. In a lot of ways. Is to be a mirror reflection. Of Israel's experience. In Egypt. Right because just like israel god has found her enslaved by sin and just like israel jesus takes his finger just like god did at exodus 20 at the, on the mount of sinai jesus takes his finger and he writes for her a new law in the ground and just like israel he says now go and I read this, and I thought it was crazy to me that God would find her, that God would redeem her, that God would save her, and then you say, "You know what? Go. Say no more. You're on your own." And, and I know that in, in times of life, when we're walking through that wilderness, it's easy to feel the same way. It's easy to feel like, "You know what? Everybody else has abandoned me. So has God." But the reality is so different. In Rome, in, in, excuse me, in John eight verse twelve. Jesus had just had this conversation with a woman and he spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And the reality is that when Jesus finds you and he brings you on the way to rest, it's not always going to be easy. But the difference is that he has promised his guiding presence in your life. And the rest of John 8, as we're going to unpack it a little bit today, is this conversation that Jesus has with the Pharisees. And it's funny to me that here's Jesus, and it's this moment, and you can sort of tension. You feel the drama. I mean, this is, this is like serious, serious law and order stuff, right? And you can feel it in the text. And, and Jesus says this amazing thing. I am the light of the world. And what's the first response that the Pharisees have? Uh, Jesus, you're bearing witness about yourself, you're breaking the law. You're breaking the law, and I, I don't get it, and 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 part of it surely is this idea that when Jesus comes, and Jesus redeems, and Jesus wants to guide, there are people like this who just cling to their religion, they just cling to their traditions. The, the author of life is standing in their presence, and all they want to see is the law that he's violating, But but for them it's so much deeper than that. Because when Jesus says this, he's actually exposed where they've placed their trust. And he's exposed where they've placed their hope. Because here's the thing. If it were, uh, you know, A.D. 30, take, if we had a, a time machine, we could travel back in time. You could call me Mr. Peabody. And uh, if we traveled back to A.D. 30, and we met a Pharisee, and we said, Hi, my name's Scott. Or you wouldn't say that. You would say what your name is. And he said, hi, I'm John Q. Pharisee. And we'd say, hey, how's life in Israel right now? And he would just kind of scratch his forehead and say, well, you know what? It kind of sucks. It kind of sucks. Because here's the thing. God made a promise to our forefathers that he would give us this land, that it would be our land of promise, that it would be our land of rest. And now the Romans actually own the land. And we have to pay taxes to Caesar. And we have to do what the Romans tell us. This is not at all how life is supposed to be. And you would say, okay, well, you're a good politician. What are you going to do to fix it? And they'd say, look, here's the thing that we have in mind, right? In Leviticus 17 through 19, God tells us how we'll earn the blessing. And we'll earn the blessing by obeying the covenant that he gave us. If we just obey the law enough, God will return our land to us. But that wasn't good enough for the Pharisees, so they even took it a little further. If we just obey the law, plus all of these other laws that we're going to tack onto the law, then God will return the land to us. He'll bless us. He'll give us his favor. See, the law is more than just their religion. It's their hope. And here Jesus stands in their midst, and he says, look, when you're walking through the wilderness, I'm the one that will guide you, and they say, no, thank you. We're good. We have our hope. We have our hope. And Jesus continues to, uh, to converse with them, and he answers them, and if I, bear, if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from. Or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge. My judgment is true. And he continues to go on to say that. You know what? I'm actually not testifying about myself. So your little clinging to your law. Your little uh, charade of hope. That you're hiding behind. Actually isn't true. Because I've come from the father. And so the Pharisees realize that they're not getting anywhere so they say well where's your father and it seems sort of like a weird question to ask for me because that's not really how we engage with each other anymore is it when you meet someone for the first time what's the first question that they'll ask you oh what do you do for a living i'll be at starbucks studying and someone will sit down next to me and we'll start talking the first thing they say to me what do you do for a living? This is how we make our judgments about someone's value to me. What do you do for a living? This is how we gauge what kind of person they are. Because the difference between being a Wall Street CEO and the guy that mops the floor at McDonald's, let's be honest, that's how we judge people. And and the thing about it is that, you know, I've recently found my place in a place where I, I just sort of am now reaping the benefits of all my hard work. There's a lot of zeros at the end of my bank account. And, and uh, none of this is true, by the way. Um, <laughs> but we're at a place in our lives where we start to, we, we're starting to figure out that if we're going to retire, and when you get to be my age, that's coming quickly, we're gonna, if we're gonna need to reti- when we need to retire, what kind of life are we going to have? Because I honestly, I don't want to be a greeter at Walmart when I'm 72. And I want to be able to send my kids to college. And so we started calling people, and we invited a financial planner, a financial advisor to come to our house. And he sits down, and the first thing I said is like, oh, how long have you been doing this? And I guarantee you that if his answer was, oh, I just started last week, I'd be a little suspicious. And if he said, yeah, you know, before last week I was down at the corner flipping the sign to advertise the barbershop, I'd say, oh, thank you for coming. Please take your coffee with you. I know, I know. That's the mug I bought in Tokyo this summer. But take it; it's yours, right? That's how we define someone's credibility. But in Jesus' day, it was a little bit different. You gained your credibility by who your father was, and you read it in the genealogies in the Bible, and and you read about it in Israel's exclamation about who their God is. Our God is the Father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So when the Pharisees asked this to Jesus, "Who's your father?" It's not, it's a little more than, who's your daddy? They're asking, how do I trust you? What sort of credibility do you have? Every rabbi shows up and saying, I speak for God, but why should we trust you? When you say all these foolish things about how you're the light of the world, what sort of authority do you have to make that claim? And Jesus answers that question. And he says that I was with the Father in heaven. And he told me what to come and tell you. And he told me what to come and teach you. And we pick it up in verse 21. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself? Since he says, Where am I going? You cannot come. He said to them, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Who are you? And this is the point in the, in the book of John where I just sort of scratch my head and I said, what kind of a question is that? Seriously, it start, John starts out by declaring that Jesus is the word of God. He's the word of God that was with God. He is God. He made everything that you see. He came to earth. He healed the blind. He raised the dead. He fed 5,000. He has these conversations with Nicodemus. If you're not born again, you won't see the kingdom of God. He has this conversation with a woman at the well. I am able to give you water. That will never require you to be thirsty again. And here we are, eight chapters in, and they look at him and they say, Who are you? Are you really? Who are you? And then I realized the other day that their responses to Jesus really aren't that different from ours. Because here's the thing here's what happens is that we walk through this point of our life between our redemption and and our final restoration, and it's the season of wilderness. And we come to church, and we're bearing the burdens, and the wounds cut deep, and we sit at home, and we struggle to put it all together. But when we come to church, if Jesus himself walked in and said, I am the light of the world, follow me, I'll guide you, we'd sit in church and we'll clap. Yes. Jesus, you're my light. I'll follow you. But the reality is that when we're sitting at the kitchen table trying to figure out how to make the bills work, when we're sitting in the doctor's office and he's just giving us terrible news, in those moments that we're outside, our responses really aren't that different from from them. You know what, Jesus? I, I thank you that you want to be my light, but my hope is in my career track. My hope is in finding the right spouse. My hope is being, is raising the right family. Thanks for coming. I'm good. And and then Jesus says, no, no, you don't understand. I love you. I want to guide you. And our next question is, who are you? Who are you? And and what are we doing to get to know the light of the world that comes to guide us? How much time are we spending getting to know, uh, if if I want to live my life to get through this wilderness, how much time am I spending getting to know the God who's guiding me? How much time am I spending with other believers, learning how they've walked through their experience, what God has done for them? How am I getting to know people that I can share how God has guided me through these moments? The reality is that our responses to Jesus really aren't that different from the Pharisees. And look, here's the thing. There's four things that John wants you to take out of this passage. The first one is that God doesn't intend for you to walk in darkness. I know sometimes it feels like it. I know sometimes it gets dark. I know sometimes it gets hard. But God doesn't plant these things in your path because he wants to see you sweat. He doesn't put things in your journey because he doesn't love you anymore. He puts them in your journey because he wants you to grow. He wants you to become more like him. He wants you to become more loving like him. And the cool thing is that he doesn't just send you on your way. He provides the light for the journey. I moved to California about six years ago. I guess it was seven years ago. I was married. I was in Maine. I uh, had a little daughter. And a woman who is now my ex-wife said, Scott, I really want to move to California. And I thought, I don't really like my family. And California is about the furthest way I could get from there. Let's go. Right? So we moved to California. I'm just joking. I love my family, by the way we moved to California and I was excited for this new chapter of my life and I was excited for this new journey and I was excited to see where God was going to plant me. I started sending applications to seminaries. I started sending my resume to churches and, and we're having dinner one night. It was in March, five months after I got here, five months after I packed up my family, quit my job, sold my car, kissed my mother goodbye. Five months into it, we're sitting at dinner, and she says, hey, we need to talk. And if you've ever heard those words, you know that it's never good news, right? So she says, Scott, you know what? I, I don't I don't really love you anymore. In fact, I, I met a guy that I've been sleeping with at work. And you want to talk about darkness? I, I And I thought to myself, God, why are you doing this to me? Like, all I've ever wanted to do is serve you. All I've ever wanted to do is love you. All I've ever wanted, and, and it, for me, it became my hope, not in the cross. My hope is the, all of these little things that I think I've done for God. And in that moment, in that moment, God said, follow me. God doesn't intend for you to live in darkness. This, uh, the second point is that John doesn't want you to miss the point. Right, Because here's the thing. I think sometimes we read these stories and we, we visualize the conversation. We visualize Jesus sitting around the table with the Pharisees having this conversation. But the thing about it is that once it gets written down, it's the words of, on the page that we need to pay attention to. And John tells this amazing story and he develops all of these characters. And what do the Pharisees do? Three times... Jesus pronounces hope, promises life, offers salvation. And three times John shows these Pharisees just don't get it. And and it's not a coincidence because here's the thing. If if you ever had kids in the backseat of the car asking you, are we there yet? Right? What happens when they ask that the first time? You understand that they're tired of being in the car, they don't want to be in the car anymore, right? But what happens the second time, they ask? Are we there yet? What happens the third time? And by the thousandth time, you're like, yep, we're here. It's the rest area. That's where we're going. Get out of the car. We'll be right over. Start your picnic without us, right? The point is that we, we ask the questions that are most important to us. And, and for the Pharisees, John wants you to see that they just don't get it. And he wants to make sure that you do. He wants you to make sure that you don't walk away from your wilderness experience thinking God doesn't care about me. Or that he won't be your hope. Or that he won't be your guidance. John doesn't want you to miss the point. The third thing that we see in this text is that the cross becomes a physical representation of the spiritual family. And we're going to jump down to verse Uh, 27. They did not understand that he'd been speaking to them about the father. So Jesus said to him, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the father taught me. And he who has sent me is with me. And here's the thing, right? So I think it'd be easy for Jesus to sort of I mean, he's the creator of the universe. I'm sure you could just point and lightning would come out of his finger and this conversation would be over, right? But the thing is that he doesn't want you to miss that That when the Father sent him to the world, he told Jesus, this is what I want you to teach them. And these are the things that I want you to show them. And And when we look at the cross, it's not just that oh, here was a misunderstood prophet. This is a misunderstood teacher This was a a misunderstood revolutionary who was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Jesus wants you to understand that the cross is so much more than that. That it's a a physical representation of how much God loves you. It's a physical representation of God's presence in your life. Because I bankrupted heaven to, to save you, to call you out of Egypt, to call you out of bondage. And when it gets tough, and when it gets ugly, it's a physical reminder that Jesus came teaching the message of God so that he might guide us through these moments. The fourth point is that this is what Jesus has been telling us since the beginning. And it seems like sort of a weird thing to say. He says, this is what I've been telling you for the beginning. And we think, wow, you're 33 years old. You've been ministering publicly for like two and a half years. We've heard you, but he's not talking about the beginning of his ministry. He's not talking about the beginning of his life. He's not talking about what the prophets said about his birth. He's not talking about the hope that the prophets proclaimed would be in Messiah. See, if you go back to the beginning of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And then jump to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the beginning that Jesus is talking about. And in Proverbs 8, right, wisdom says that I was at the side of God and I was with him as he created everything. In between his saying this is thousands of years of I've been saying this from the beginning. When I created the world, when I spoke it into existence and it was without form and it was void and it was dark, I said let there be light. That's my word from the beginning. And when and when I left the throne room of God and I came to earth and, and I and I met you and I found you, I spoke life. That is from the beginning. This is what I've been telling you from the beginning. Don't miss it. See, here's the thing. And uh, I don't know how long you've been walking with God. I don't know what your journey's been like. I, uh, I certainly don't know what he redeemed you out of. And if you've not experienced this yet, I hate to be the first person to break it to you, but there's going to be a moment where God has redeemed you out of the house of bondage and he's going to bring you to the to the edge of the wilderness. He's going to bring you to the threshold of desolation. He's going to bring you to the edge of darkness and he's going to look at you and he's going to say, go. And in those moments, if you're like me, you'll say, okay, you know what, God? I told you when you found me that I would go wherever you want me to go. And, And I told you when you saved me from that, I would do whatever you want me to do. So I'll go through this. I'll go through this wilderness because I believe that you're taking me from bondage to to my place of rest. I'll go. But I just need you to to ask you to just kind of make it easy for me. I I don't want this to be too hard on me. I I want to be able to stand here on the the edge of the wilderness, and I just want to go from point A to point B and look back on this time. And thank you for how much you stretched me. And thank you for how much you've made me grow. And thank you for guiding me through it. But I don't want it to be hard. And you're going to take a step out into the wilderness. And you're going to find hurt. And you're going to find heartbreak. And you're going to find adultery and you're going to find divorce, and you're going to find unemployment, and you're going to find illness, and you're going to get kicked in the teeth, and you're going to get punched in the mouth, and you're going to fall on your knees, and you're going to scream out, God, why? Why are you allowing me to walk through this? Why can't you just take me from here to there on the path of least resistance? This is the easy way through. This is the clear way through. And God's going to look at you and say, not this time. This time your path is going to be like the path of the Israelites. And you're going to say, God, I don't understand why I'm dealing with this. I don't understand why she left me. I don't understand why I got this diagnosis. And God's going to look at you and say, not this time. This time I'm going to take you all the way around the wilderness because this is the thing that you don't understand about the easy road. This is the thing that you don't understand about the clear path is that lurking in the shadows of the easy way are enemies that are going to scare you back into your days of bondage and not bring you to the place of freedom. Lurking in the shadows of the darkness are things that are going to make you wish that you are still dead in your sins rather than be brought to the place of your redemption, of your rest, of your eternal life. God's going to walk into the moment of your wilderness and He's going to plant the cross of Christ and He's going to say, Follow me. And it might not be convenient, but it will never be darkness. See, here's the thing John tells us this story about this woman who was caught in sin. The punishment was death. Do you think she wasn't afraid? Do you think she wasn't scared? she knew that the only way out of this situation was going to be in a body bag and Jesus finds her in that moment and he bends down and he writes a new law on the floor of the temple it's not a law of death it's a law of life and it's a law of love and he says go and sin no more don't worry right now what that looks like. Don't worry about what that means for you. Don't worry about how am I going to do this. Because I'm going to do it with you. I'm going to light your dark sky with my own presence. On your journey from redemption to rest, when there's these moments of wilderness, Jesus is going to point at his cross and say this is your happily ever after. Let's pray. Father God, we just want to thank you so much for the life that is ours in you. you. Thank you, Lord, that you have not redeemed us, that you have not brought us out of the place of death, that you have not called us out of the house of slavery just to leave us to do it alone, just to grope around in the dark without a guide. Lord, we thank you that you are more than just a savior. We thank you that you are a shepherd. And we thank you for the way that you guide us. We ask that you would help us to cling to the cross. That you would help us to cling to the light that you offer when we're walking through the wilderness. And we don't know how this journey is going to end. Because ultimately, Lord, our journey will end in you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.